listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Knapp. Yes, it's episode 68 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo, back with Thomas Neff after a two-week hiatus and the other half of the West Coast Express here in Alexander Gongay-Ruzik. Thomas, welcome back. How are things with you? Glad to have you back. Yeah, it's glad to be back. Uh, school is crazy. Obviously, um, I graduated and I finished classes college in two weeks, so it's happy to be back. Looks like I was uh, definitely missing you guys. You know, I was obviously deciding my future as well. Um, big episode today, uh, and we're very close to getting 200 uh, ratings on Spotify and 150 on Apple, uh, so it should be exciting. AGR, how are things with you, my friend out there on the West Coast? Soon to be joining you there, by the way. Yes, I mean, it was tough for Thomas, I guess. It was a, a lot of West Coast bias lately on the show, so it's yes. nice uh, to get a bit of e- even out there. But uh, yeah, jokes aside, we're doing good to on the West Coast. Went to, to Victoria for a couple of days. And then just absolutely destroyed my body on the BC Place turf and in a in a charity tournament on Sunday. Other than that, I'm doing great. It's it's always always good vibes here in the West Coast. A reminder to the listeners to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss any episodes. If you're on Apple or Spotify, then drop a rating and review to help us get to those coveted numbers that Thomas touched on there. Right, and we'll begin with the official news. That was initially reported on last week's shows. Canada will indeed face Iran in a friendly at BC Place in Vancouver on June 5th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The dates and times were also confirmed for the Nations League matches. Canada faces Curacao at BC Place June 9th, 7.30 Pacific, 10 Eastern. That's followed by Honduras on June 13th at 10 p.m. Eastern in San Pedro Sula, which, by the way, they've just announced uh, their new head coach, uh, Diego Vasquez. Uh, Boys, you discussed this in depth last week, uh, but now that we know what awaits in June, what will you be watching for, whether it's certain players or otherwise? Oh, man. I mean, this is this is big for the city of Vancouver. This is big for for the Canada, you know, the men's national team as a whole. So I think it's going to be a key window, I think, for them, because the way I see it, this might be their last proper, you know, com- competitive matches, matches at home in 2022. Uh, other than this, it's September, which who knows what the state of the team is going to be in September after the offseason. You might have a bunch of players at new clubs, you know, who knows what's going to happen to the start of the season, uh, injuries, etc. So I think this is a huge moment for, for Canada to, to really answer some of their questions about their squad with it being a bigger window. Uh, maybe they bring in some extra players to really evaluate because in September it's going to be just tuning things up uh, with that being the last window before the November World Cup kicks off. Uh, so I think from a tactical standpoint, an individual standpoint, there's a lot to watch in terms of individual battles and guys on the cusp. Uh, potentially, you know, as we always talk about, maybe some dual nationals thrown in, uh, some really, you know, hot starters in, in the ML, you know, MLS season, for example, could be looked at. So there's going to be a lot of fun there. And then in terms of Vancouver itself, obviously with them now being a host candidate city for 2026, uh, this is going to be a great chance for them to kind of audition and show that they can be a, a, a city that can host Canada, that can host games of this magnitude. Um, already the Iran game sounds like it's already almost sold out. Uh, a lot of Canadian fans, a 
good smattering of, of, of Iranian fans as well. It's going to be fun. Hopefully, I imagine Curacao will be the same, probably just a little longer to, to fill up. But with it being a game with the likes of Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, you know, the big names that, that Canadian fans have gotten used to, I can't imagine it. It won't be long till that game sells out either. So uh, this is going to be a big window, I think, for both Canada, but also uh, just Vancouver, given the, the host city status, given that it's been three years since they've had a men's national team game. Uh, this is going to be a huge chance for them to really prove that uh, in terms of national team games going forward, that uh, when it comes to, to 2023 in the future men's national team nations league, uh, you know, group stage and potentially knockout rounds, if they do well, that Vancouver could be a place to consider. AGR sort of took the words out of my mouth, but just to reiterate, really it's going to come down to, from a playing perspective, which of the quote unquote fringe starters are going to get their opportunities in this window, whether that's in the friendly, whether that's against Curacao or Honduras and the names you're looking at are ones we've already brought up. E.K. Ugbo, possibly Dane St. Clair, given how well he's been playing this season. Perhaps Derek Cornelius or a new right-sided center back, Joel Waterman maybe, get a shot at the back line because with them playing on turf, perhaps Steven Vittoria isn't risked for one, if not both of those games, and they give a shot to somebody else. And maybe they even move Kamal Miller into the center, as we've kind of discussed for the last month or two here, that could end up being his future position, uh, at least with the national team, certainly. Off the field, it's definitely the crowds, because the Iran game, it's going to sell out. I, I think we can pretty much say that. And it's thanks largely to the Iranian contingent from the looks of it, because I've been told that plenty are traveling from the U S for this game. I have a lot of Iranian friends in Vancouver and, or the surrounding areas that said they're all going to go and support Iran. So you're definitely going to see a mixture of fans. I would imagine how much the split will be. We'll have to find out. I would assume, but it's going to be loud in there in favor of Iran for sure. Uh, or at the very least, you're going to, to know that their presence is going to be felt. And some might say, well, that's bad because you're playing at home. You want to have a pro-Canadian crowd. But I actually think it's pretty good World Cup prep, considering when you go to Qatar, you might be playing in games where the crowds are very pro-Belgium or Croatia or Morocco, and you have to deal with that. So in a way, it could actually help you. But the Curacao match is understandably not as popular. It's on a Thursday night, whereas the Iran match is on a Sunday afternoon, it's a game featuring a couple of World Cup teams. So clearly there's one that's a bigger draw over the other. But there's been a bigger conversation, I feel, about Vancouver better sell out these games because they protested throughout qualifying about not getting any of the Ocho games. And now they kind of got to put up or shut up here. And I think that's unfair because the Nations League against Curacao compared to the Ocho is night and day, guys. And it's not like... Toronto, for example, was supporting the national team as well as they have recently. You go back to those Honduras and El Salvador games. They weren't full due to COVID restrictions, yes, but there were strong away contingents in both of those games. And it led to that now famous quote from Milan Borjan pleading for the Canada fans to make their presence felt. And then from the Panama game onwards, that's exactly what they did. Canada, USA in 2019, that famous Nations League game that they played at BMO Field, that had about 15, 16,000 when the hype around the team was still decently high, not to this level, but you wonder if that game being at BC Place would have gotten the CSA above a 20,000 capacity crowd. Um, and Vancouver has gotten good crowds for Canada in the past, regardless of opponent, regardless of competition. 
17,000 for French Guyana in Nations League qualifying and over 20,000 for qualifiers in 2015 and 16 against Honduras and El Salvador, plus the sellout for the Mexico match. The city has always supported the national team well when, let's be honest, other cities haven't always had similar size crowds until recently. This isn't tribalism. I'm just presenting facts as to why Vancouver fans desperately wanted the national team to come to the West Coast. And now they get their chance to be able to pack a couple of games here. Not that it should be a surprise, but FIFA officials will be at that game, you know, to scout it as a as an official candidate city uh, for 2026. Pretty much the exact same thing that happened uh, when Edmonton held those games. Um, but it's absolutely bizarre to me that it's taken this long for Vancouver to have a home uh, Canadian men's uh, men's home game. The other thing is Bontis coming on the show and saying that he wanted to, you know, have games at a bigger stadium. I mean, obviously. I, just because Montreal is not in the conditions that they are, you, you already knew that it was that it was Vancouver. But I've seen a lot of people say on Twitter that Iran, you know, it's not a, you know, it may not be the sexiest opponent. I completely agree. But let's not remember, guys. You have to respect opponents because yes, Canada could have um, played against South American national teams. And don't get me wrong, in June that would have been fantastic. I think that would have been great preparation. But Iran, uh, as you guys touched on last week, I wasn't you know, there because school won not, but Iran is still a solid team and they're 20, 21 in the world, right? Um, and Peter, you bring up a good point that it's you're going to have a lot of away fans. Um, I'd be surprised if for any of the three matches um, in, in Qatar, Canada at least comes close to at least being 50-50 in terms of fans. So in fact, the, the Iran game will be good prep for that. Um, and I completely agree with you guys for the for the games. I would even go that like I wouldn't be surprised if Herman you know does us all dirty and for the three games just goes with an A team. You, you obviously rotate, but I mean if you're not playing guys that you have question marks about um, against Curacao and especially Honduras, given that they're still very weak, I would even argue that Curacao is even above Honduras, um, you know, or at least close to it. Um, I think that it would be unfair to the players, especially that you can bring a taxi squad and whatnot. I mentioned this a couple of times already. I hearken back to what happened with Peru after they qualified for the World Cup. They got there with a decently young side. Average age was about 26 years old or something like that. Most of the guys in their core were in that 25 to 28 range at the time they qualified, with a few exceptions. Then they stagnated after Copa America when they made the final in 2019. And then they started qualifying really, really poorly in this cycle. One point in their first five games, quite frankly, it was an incredible run to even get the Interconfederation playoff in the end. But it's because Ricardo Gareca was not experimenting with more players when other teams in Conmebol were doing the exact same thing, maybe outside of Chile, Thomas. <laughs> well, we could still be in the World Cup. We'll, we'll okay. see. We'll see. All it's- right. Eventually, Gareca started to give opportunities to the likes of Marcos Lopez, to Sergio Peña, to Carlos Lora. Gianluca Lapadula gets recruited. Yes, he's in his early 30s, but he's an established player in Europe with good pedigree. And then what happens? Their form turns around. The team is, is refreshed. You don't want Canada to fall into that same category. I think it's slightly different in that you do have a little more talent in the player pool in terms of the youth coming through, but you you have to find that weird balance in that 
you still want to establish the chemistry, yes, but you also want to make sure that you're ready for the cycle after this. And friendlies are a good way to do that. If you want to stick with your A team in competitive settings and not have a lot of rotation, fair enough, but at least give opportunities to a few guys in friendlies because you're probably going to end up needing them at the World Cup. Let's say you're a goal down, you need Ike Ugo to come on to snatch you a goal. If he's not really all that comfortable in the system playing for more than 10, 15 minutes, is there really much of a point? Well, I think it's going to be a huge window for John Herdman uh, because I think next, just this this end of year, I think the run-up to Qatar because you look at the first few years of his tenure, it was just you know getting as many dual nationals to commit and really figuring out who his core group of players were. Uh, by the time the World Cup qualifiers came around, he obviously knew who that was. And even then, as the qualifiers have came around, like you have to remember heading into the Bermuda match, Kyle Lahren was on the fringes of the squad. I mean, yeah, it, Lucas Cavallini started up front with him in that that first Bermuda game. And then Lahren decided to, to turn into, you know, a Canadian superhuman and score every game for them for the next year and a half. And, you know, I think with Hardman now that he has this core group of players, it's obviously going to be harder to move away from that because there's now there's that loyalty. Now there's that, you know, what guys can give in certain situations. But that's the trick of a national team coach, because if guys are going to knock down on the door and again, the guy I'd use as an example in the squad is E.K. Ugbo. There's the form he's in. How are you going to ignore a guy scoring as he has been in a top five league uh, and, and has, has been in the program? And then even on, on the fringe, you look at the center back situation. Yes, the left-sided center back is golden for whatever reason. You got Miller, Kamal Miller, Scott Kennedy, Derek Cornelius. But then you look at the center center back situation. Daniel Henry keeps picking up knocks. Uh, you got Stephen Vittoria's played like two club games since since January or something absurd like that. You look at guys like Joel Waterman playing out of the out of his skin in Montreal. You look at Lucas McNaughton continuing to grow in Toronto FC. All of a sudden, you're going to have to start considering those things, and that's where. I think Herdman's going to have his biggest test to find that balance between, yes, you want to be loyal to Vittoria and, and, and Henry, especially if they're in form and they're, sh- they're in shape, I take them. But also if, if there's a certain point, if Vittoria picks up an injury, you have to be ready. And this moment where he's already struggling at the, you know, to get minutes at the club level, this is a great time to, to, to extend the fringes of the squad. And because there's so many guys doing well, like you look at Mathieu Chouinier in Montreal coming right back in, you know, Samuel Piet, who is technically on the fringes now, coming in back into the Montreal squad, looking great. Waterman, I mentioned, you, you got the, the, the many TFC youngsters and as well as McNaughton and Chung, even Ryan Raposo over in Vancouver, all of a sudden playing like their best player uh, recently. Like there's these guys are coming in and in and Raheem Edwards, we can go down the, the list. Uh, so Herdman's going to have to find a way to get that fringes of his squad extended. Then within the squad, yes. How do you get EK Ugo? How do you get your, your, your other guys on the fringe in, involved so that they're ready? Well, I think we talked about this like a month ago, but, for me, the players that are like locked in, you know, nothing happens to them is 17, 18 players. And then you have obviously all these variables that you've mentioned at, you know, the goalkeeping position, you know, can Dane Sinclair get some minutes? Uh, obviously, Henry and, um, and Vittoria's health comes into question yet. Will Witherspoon be back? Uh, Cavalier, who just scored recently, is he going to be, you know, good enough um, by then? Or, you know, could they bring in someone like Jefferson? So there's all these variables, but this is like a chance. I mean, if Herman is not at least contemplating a plan B or a plan C, um, then you have to think that, you know, these games, what are they for? Because they could have had actually one more friendly, but my guess is that Herman didn't want to tire out uh, his players, particularly the ones coming out of Europe who are coming from a very uh, busy uh, European season. And with that said, uh, we received a listener question from Mike Lafarbe. 
uh, one of our most loyal listeners. With Nations League and friendlies uh, leading up to the World Cup, what's a realistic world ranking for Canada to achieve heading into the tournament? It's difficult to pinpoint this because we still don't know what kind of opponents they're going to get in the September friendlies. And there are certain variables in, in, in terms of world rankings between now and then, right? Because if you end up getting a team that slips a couple of places, it changes up everything. But I did some rough math on this. Let's say Canada gets a pair of top 20 countries in September. They gain eight to 10 points with a win over Iran next month. It's maximum 15 points that that could maybe be a little bit of an overestimate there for every win over Curacao and Honduras. With that in mind, they can get close to where they were at a point in March and or January, and that's about 32nd-ish, because there are going to be one or two teams that probably won't be as active. I'm talking like Egypt, for example, whereas some of the European teams might still be able to catch up because they have Nations League at the same time the CONCACAF teams do. If they can continue that trend into September, they can get in the... I guess low thirties in this case, like the 30 to 32 range, maybe even push into 28, 29. But the fact that they're going to be playing a lot of friendlies, it, the weight of FIFA rankings points for friendlies compared to the nation's league and compared to qualifiers and world cup matches is a lot lower. So you're not going to see, I think as big of a jump, but they can still get a few places and, and sort of pad the stats as it were leading up to the world cup. Well, their best FIFA ranking um, was just very recently ago uh, in February when they reached 33. So I think top 30 is, is, is very achievable. Uh, and to head into your first World Cup in 36 years um, as having the best FIFA ranking that this program has ever had, it, it would be amazing. Like what Peter said, I think they should um, have nations that are, you know, in, in that 20 to 25 range. Because, I mean, you should always play against teams that are better than you. Well, now I can say this, but I mean, they were trying to uh, organize a friendly with Argentina. Um, maybe that's going to come back to the table right now. It's, there's nothing, you know, obviously Argentina has many, many options, you know, to choose from, you know, they, but, but look at me, if they can get a friendly that, you know, similar to Iran teams that are, you know, that they can beat um, as Peter, you know, has done all the math and, and the calculations, they can, they can get themselves some, some nice vantage point. Uh, final question uh, from Jacob, the box guy. How would you like the 10 games for Canada allocated across the three cities? for the 2026 World Cup. Well, I don't even think we're going to get three cities, but what do you guys think? That's it. I think it's pretty straightforward right now. Unless some sort of miracle happens in Edmonton, it's going to be five in Toronto, five in Vancouver. I think that's the easy split. You get the Toronto, you get the Vancouver Seattle pod that they keep talking about in FIFA circles. I think that one seems almost like a foregone conclusion based on how Vancouver came back in last minute and what talks out of Seattle. And then for Toronto, with all the upgrades they're doing, five games would be very reasonable uh, for them. So unless Edmonton comes in and say, if they do come in last minute, as unfortunate as it is, it's hard for me to imagine them getting more than two, maybe three games. And then in that case would probably be some sort of four, four, two split uh, and not in the formation sense of four for uh, Vancouver, four for Toronto, two for Edmonton. So uh, I I can't, yeah, I can't imagine Edmonton getting too much if they were to be in. So I'd say Vancouver, Toronto, minimum four games, and then uh, Edmonton probably we'll we'll see them bow out but if they do get in not more than two or three if vancouver ends up getting four or five games 
there are reports out there from Manuel Veth at Transfer Market that Vancouver was given a quote-unquote sweetener to re-enter the selection process. So we don't know what that means. Like it could mean, oh, you get an extra Canada game or maybe you get an extra marquee game. I, I, you need a 60,000 stadium to host a quarterfinal. Now, I wonder if FIFA will say, ah, 54, 55,000, close enough. Vancouver, you can get a quarterfinal match. There's your sweetener um, if you end up being selected. That's how I could possibly see it being allocated differently compared to Toronto, where they're only going to have about 40K at BMO Field. So that's how I could see it going. Um, but the fact that Seattle's right there makes it even, even better for Vancouver, that is. Yeah, I don't remember the last time that a venue of that that small size, um, 40K, got a, a knockout match, like something, you know, um, that big. But but nonetheless, even if you compare Vancouver to Seattle, I mean, Seattle's way bigger, man. Um, I think it's different. But Victor Monteglani, president of CONCACAF and vice president of FIFA, is from Vancouver. So maybe he can, uh, you know, move some things around and, mm-hmm. and, you know, convince, you know, to have those games in Vancouver. And we move on to a loaded edition of the Canucks Abroad Roundup. Alfonso Davies and Bayern Munich closed out their season with a 2-2 draw with Wolfsburg on Saturday. Davies had 81 minutes and recorded four key passes, three out of seven dribbles, two tackles, and one interception. Your thoughts on his overall performance since he's returned in April? Well, it understandably took a few games for Davies to fully get back in sync with teammates, regain his anticipation, know when defenders were going to be coming at him, all those little things that you need when you're regaining match fitness. But the last two or three games, he's been straight up taking over these matches. Yes, they're low risk because Bayern have already clinched, but that's very promising to see, especially from a national team perspective, because I'm sure what's comforting for Herdman is Davies has been used more as a wide midfielder slash winger who gets freedom to drift inside as opposed to just going kind of up and down as a wingback. He's had 35 and 39 touches respectively in his last two games in the attacking third. That is the most he's accumulated since his return. And he's had nearly 200 combined touches in the last two games, which is the most over a two game span, I believe since December when he was kind of hitting his top form right before the winter break happened. Um, And he's also had a combined seven shot creating actions across those last two games. Everything is just looking really, really good for him. It's unfortunate the season ended at the time it did, but it's promising to see him regaining that. I think we all imagined he would yeah, in terms of Davies, I think he's just again continues to to find his feet. His what's impressed me most is just he continues to grow in his uh, all around game. Uh, he's just every game he seems to get more confident offensively. He more importantly gets more confident in cutting inside and operating essentially, which is always why I joke, semi joke, but uh, I think it's becoming less and less jo- of a joke that he's going to become a number eight later in his career when he figures out how to properly scan and operate in a midfield, but he's showing a lot more of those skills. I find with, with binary, he just cuts inside and operates in the, the half spaces. And I think, you know, there's a reason why he gets along very well with Julian Nagelsmann, who's very sharp, very tactical mind, who, who's, I think next year is going to be a big part of his, his plans is it's going to be figuring out what to do with Davies, especially you see all those rumors with Robert Lewandowski potentially on the way out. Some of the names, who could come in to play, but Bayern's going to have to, to do a lot of, you know, rejigging in terms of they might not play with a number nine next year, based on some of the rumors you've been seeing. I think having a Davies 
uh, you doing damage. Uh, maybe if Nagelsmann finally switches to his favorite wingbacks formation, which I, again, I, I've been saying since September, which would suit Davies so well, it would be fun to, to, to see what he can do. But Jonathan David finally broke his 10 game scoring drug with a brace in Lille's three, one victory over Nice on Saturday. In doing so, he set a record for most goals by a Canadian in a top five men's European league with 15 in 37 games. More on David in the Canucks Broad mailbag later on. Ike Ugbo got 25 minutes off the bench as Troyes lost 3-1 to Lens, but are mathematically safe for another season in league. Ah, and we have another league champion. We're talking about, of course, Tejan Buchanan's club, Bruges, beat Antwerp 3-1 to clinch the league title in Belgium. Buchanan missed this one after he was sent off in the midweek. Stefano Stacchio was an unused sub in Porto's season finale against Storl, which they won 2-0. Celebrations also for Stacchio as Porto won the league a while back. Steven Vittorio's Morenz will play the relegation playoff after crushing Vizela 4-1 on Saturday. Vittoria came off the bench for the final 25 to 30 minutes in that one. Morenz take on Chavez in the first leg this Saturday. Over in Turkey, Kyle Laren finally got back onto the scoring sheets to help Besiktas beat Gostepe 2-0 on Sunday. It was Laren's first goal for Besiktas since December 23rd of last year. He could play his final game for the club this Sunday. Speaking of which, any update on Laren's future? Uh, no new update on Laren, really, in that he is still sort of warming to Besiktas's last offer from a few months ago when they were negotiating a new contract. To those who maybe didn't hear the, the initial reports, Laren and his agent approached different clubs, tried to get some sort of feeler out there in terms of what the interest would be, how much he could get in wages, and he just hasn't received desirable enough offers from abroad. So as a result... He's starting to warm up to the idea of accepting Besiktas' last contract offer. What Laren was looking for was about 2.5 million euros from Besiktas and some other clubs. He was maybe looking for as low as about 2.1, 2.2 million euros annually, while Besiktas offered him 1.75 million euros a year on a long-term deal of at least, I think, three or four years it could be. And those are net annual wages that this is being reported in. So gross, you're talking, you know, in the 4 million euro range really is what he probably end up getting. Tiba Hutchinson came on for the second half with Besiktas going down to nine men. He was excellent defensively to help his team grind out the win. Sam Adekube was left out of the match day squad for Hadaspor, which is curious because he has been linked to Fernabachi and Istanbul Basak Shahir. In recent days, plus some other European clubs pro reports in Turkey. We'll discuss that in detail in the mailbag. In England, in the championship, Daniel Jevison came off the bench for Sheffield United in their 2-1 loss to Nottingham Forest in their first leg of the promotion playoff semi-final. Richard Leray was an unused substitute for Forest. The second leg is this Tuesday at City Grounds. In Germany, Scott Kennedy was an unused sub in Young Regensburg's season foul against Werder Bremen, losing 2-0 in that one. He'll be one to watch this summer with his contract expiring next June. Derek Cornelius finished this 94 for Panatolokos in a 3-1 defeat to 
Yonikos in their final game of the season in Greece. Milan Boria and Russell Belgrade etched Napradak 1-0 as he kept the clean sheet in that one. Stefan Mitrovic at the full 94 for Nikinish in their 2-0 victory against Baka Topola on Friday. In Scotland, Scott Arfield checked out of Rangers 3-1 win over Hearts at halftime as they prepare on as they prepare for the Europa League final this Wednesday against Frankfurt. Ben Payton picked up his assist for Ross County as he started in the team's 2-1 loss to Dundee United. His brother, Harry Payne, had around 40 minutes off the bench. Theo Bears came on for St. Johnston in the 85th minute in their 1-0 victory over Aberdeen. St. Johnston will play Inverness in the relegation playoff. The first leg is this Friday, and the second leg is on Monday, just a couple days later. Richie Ennen was sent off in the 47th minute for Nishi Novgorod, so he'll miss their season finale this upcoming weekend in the Russian Premier League. Charles Andres Brim scored for FC Eindhoven, who won 3-1 against the Grafschap to reach the semifinals of the promotion playoffs against Ado Den Haag. First leg is on Tuesday with the second leg on Saturday. Over to MLS, Mark Anthony K went 79 minutes for the Colorado Rapids in their 2-1 win over LAFC. For LAFC, Maxime Cropo had the start in the defeat for them. And Dane Sinclair had the start for Minnesota United, who lost 3-1 to the Seattle Sanders. Finally, Jesse Fleming and Chelsea completed a domestic double by winning the Women's FA Cup. Ashley Lawrence and Jordan Heidemann claimed the Coupe de France with PSG as well, so congratulations to them. Let's move on to the Canucks Abroad mailbag, the final whistle. John Herman has been linked with to Burnley, Blackburn Rovers, and QPR. This is, of course, thanks to a report by Mirror Football. Do you believe there is a chance of him leaving? Personally, I don't see him leaving until after Qatar. Thanks for the great content. As always, up the NFP. And similar question from Paul Newmarch. How credible are the Herman rumors? How long do you think the TNMT can conceivably keep him around, giving his success and the interest in him? Now, gentlemen, before you, before you answer, I do want to say this. This show perhaps may be the only show in Canada that has that even brought up the possibility of Herman even leaving, you know, just months ago, even weeks ago when AGR, you know, officially joined us. The Ancelotti rumors, even though they were four or five months ago, you guys didn't discuss this last week, but Ancelotti came out, said that, um, you know, that he, he is looking at Canada potentially. Why not? Was his quote. But, you know, I think this is interesting. I think there is some juice to this. And, and, I, and I think, personally speaking, that, yes, Newcastle is, you know, the, the club of the dreams. But in order to get to Newcastle, you might have to go to a, go to a place that, you know, would be a step up, you know, a, a, a trampoline, so to speak. Um, so if the right offer comes around, uh, why not? Especially with, with Ancelotti saying that if it's not Real Madrid, he might retire. So that's a good point you bring up because I did have that thought come into my mind when I saw the report from the mirror in that I don't think it's a coincidence that you're seeing these links and then Ancelotti officially comes out and starts talking about one day coaching Canada and all this. And as you said, Thomas, you and I had heard rumblings that there was informal chatter about this months but we ago. Don't, we didn't want to formally say it because, you know, we didn't know if it was. Exactly. But now we can, right? So it, we're safe to do so. But as is the case with players, when a coach is linked to a club, 
it doesn't necessarily mean he's the top choice. He could be part of a short list or longer list of possible candidates. It sounds like QPR has locked in on MK Don's coach, Liam Manning, as their top option. And I'm sure he's attainable with Don's failing to get promoted to the championship. Burnley is linked with all sorts of managers. Chris Wilder, Daniel Farka, Wayne Rooney even. Vincent Company has been put in there. Carlos Carvajal is now out of a job after leaving Braga. He has some history in English football. I'm sure he will attract some interest from all of these open vacancies in the championship. Blackburn apparently has a ton of interest in that job, but the Venkies are tricky to deal with. Long story short, Herdman's not leaving before Qatar. No chance. Before 2026, if he's getting fringe interest now and Canada makes some sort of impression at the World Cup, I'm sure he'll keep being linked more strongly. And Ancelotti is already starting to hint that he might want to start winding down a little bit from the club game and maybe move into international management within the next year or two. I think that's more likely than Herdman jumping ship now right before Qatar, because on top of that as well, those aren't the most surefire, like, hey, I can build something here jobs. All I'm saying is I can't picture Herdman standing on the side of Turf Moor yelling, get stuck in as Ben Mee tries to <laughs> loft a 40-yard long ball up to Woot Weghorst. But uh, other than the stylistic fit <laughs> that some of those clubs would offer, I just think that it's all in Herdman's hands. I think in terms of the Newcastle links, I personally think they have been a bit overblown. Yes, he's born there, but his kids are born in Canada. His son, Jay, for example, is coming through the Whitecaps Academy. He's going to play for, he's already represented the Canadian U20s, you know, nationals. Imagine if, if he continues to grow and, and progress, he will want to represent Canada long-term. I think there's pull for Herdman also to stay in Canada. He's made Vancouver his home. So if, if, if as long as the project's working out with him and uh, he has that incentive, I think well, obviously, like Peter says, before 2022, no chance. Just especially like, yeah, like you're going to a Burnley job. If they're going to fire a guy like Sean Dyke, who's done so much building for them just to even make Burnley the club that they are, because, you know, as as much as you can joke about their style and their whatnot how, for how small of a club they were to become a regular fixture for years in the premier league back when scott arfield was there they're even flirting with europa league it was it was wild and the fact that they fired a guy like sean dyke i wouldn't have confidence in a project like that if i were herdman uh, you know even a team like qpr it's just in england in general it's just it's so many short-term things it's rare you see managers who go and get to see a project through long term it has to be a manager like at the top top like a like a jurgen klopp or you know pep guardiola even in the lower divisions it's super uh, rare but even beyond that yeah i think for herdman in terms of canada what i think i hearken back to is you know, the interviews he made last year with The Athletic where he spoke about his choice to join the CanMNT from the CanWNT. And he was noting that, oh, uh, you know, part of the reason is that he he wanted to 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 be there when they, you know, to help qualify the team to, to the Men's World Cup to get the huge windfall that I would provide because he spoke at length about how he, you know, he saw the future of Canadian youth soccer. And, and he, he's done such, he, when he was in charge of the women's team, he made some huge strides in terms of the, the women's youth development since he's been on the men's side. Same, uh, he's been putting in all sorts of hours at the, the youth development side. Like he, for example, weekly, monthly, he's going to Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver's academies to get stuck in, watch kids coach kids of all ages like he is so involved in in the youth uh, setups in Canada as well as the the CPL 
all of that. So I think for, for Herdman, he's so, you know, invested in that. And then now, right when the funds kick in at the beginning of 2022, and he can really start to make the changes that I'm sure he's wanting to make, I think it's going to be, it's, it's not going to happen. I think personally, I think he's going to stay at least till 2026. The only question is if he continues to have the success that he is, that he's having, how is he going to be able to ignore some of the offers? And I think that's fair. Cause I think if this is, he's already getting Burnley interest, say what, what's going to happen when he has a good world cup in 2022, say, or it kind of continues to win. The clubs are only going to get bigger. It's going to go from Burnley's. It's going to go to, you know, historic clubs like, you know, Everton, maybe as, as big as Spurs say one day, if, uh, you know, things continue to, to grow for, for Herman, that's just in England alone. I'm sure there's teams in other countries. Does he step up into a technical director role with Canada, a CEO role? I wouldn't be surprised, but also, uh, you know, he could also then uh, take the lure of such jobs because he is still quite young for a coach in his early 40s if I'm not mistaken mid 40s which for coaches go you look at Carlo Ancelotti how long he's been coaching you know you can coach for a long time I don't know what's more bizarre the fact that Ancelotti wants to coach Canada or the fact that the option uh, of Herman is better than than the one previously mentioned here's what I'll say Herman can have that job the men's national team head coach job probably until forever and even you mentioned like even something that would pay even better, you know, maybe in the higher ranks as head coach. But here's the thing. I've actually heard that Herman's still um, interested as much as he's invested into Canada because all the, all the reasons you mentioned now, Alex, his, his sons were born here. One of his sons, of course, he's, he's playing for the Whitecaps and whatnot uh, and, his, and his family and whatnot. He's still, I feel like he's the kind of guy that for him, once a challenge is done, he just has to go for the next thing. Like, I, I just feel like he's that guy that there's always a step up in this game. Like, there's never a place sure where, like, there's, there's not, there's always a higher bar. And I'll even say this the same source that told me that about the Unshotted Rumor six months ago said that the Whitecaps have even just casually mentioned to him, even though that would probably never happen now because his stock has now risen so high that you're getting interest from, from these clubs like Burnley, QPR, and whatnot. But I, I would not be surprised if, if Herman, either in 2022 or 2026, does decide to step um, out of his um, national team role and more into a coach, a club coaching role. Because at the end of the day, I mean, if you're Herman, besides Newcastle, I mean, you know, to be a coach in a club game, you know, it, it's, it's something that I'm sure has probably crossed his mind many, many, many times. Now on to some questions regarding Marcelo Flores, who in case you've missed it, has reportedly committed to Mexico over Canada, uh, according to uh, one soccer, and then obviously confirmed by the player himself. We're not surprised, but we received tons of questions. The first one is from The Final Whistle. We all knew Flores would join Mexico, and I'm personally glad the drama is over, but war are your thoughts. Another question from Arion 5 with Marcel Flores. Do you think he made the right choice, even though he won't make the Mexico World Cup squad for 2022? I am personally very nonplussed and whelmed by this. I have no <laughs> vested interest in, in what happened there. I just think while again, with, with Marcelo Flores, it's one of those where he's a prospect. That's kind of what I, I noted about in the tweet. He's an exciting prospect. Again, Arsenal U18s, Arsenal U23s, training with the Arsenal first team. That's a big deal. It's, he's a great player. You see what he does for the Mexico youth national teams. But I mean, A, the interest, first of all, wasn't always there in Canada. Mexico's always kind of been the draw. So if he wants to choose Mexico, so be it. But then even just you look now where Canada's at, they're, they're focusing on 2022. You don't have really room for an 18-year-old who's not playing 
professionally again we we talk about it and we'll we'll we'll, we'll go into it because you know looking at some of the questions here again Stefan Mitrovic and there's other players too are playing professionally in a similar position if you're talking 2022 yeah maybe long-term Flores makes it you'd love to to have him but I just think in terms of where Canada's ambitions are at short term with them focusing on this world cup cycle, this group, they're going to, they, they, they've kind of moved past the point for potential for prospects. I think, you know, Mexico, if anything needs this more, more than, than, uh, than Canada does Mexico's prospect pool. Uh, you know, it, it, there's obviously always going to be depth with Liga MX, obviously, you know, very solid league setup. They always have youth coming through, but in terms of shine, in terms of excitement right now, especially guys in Europe, there's low. It's the, the Mexican exports have kind of been surpassed by the U S and Canada, maybe not statistically, but in terms of players that are catching attention and playing in top leagues and, and circuits, Canada and, and U S for sure has gone ahead of Canada's not quite there, but you're seeing more and more, you know, Lucas DS's and, and, and other players who are Justin Smith's and these top setups. You, you go through the list. There, there's so many. Um, so I think for, 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 because of all of those reasons, I'm not too, too disappointed again, special player. I'm sure floors will be in a, maybe he'll score some goals against uh, Canada, but I just think for where, where it stands right now and how, just the, the, I just don't get what the rush was from him as an 18 year old to have to pledge his future. So immediately, like he had three, you have three countries interested in you. Uh, you, you, you know, you can take your time and then when you make your pro debut, let them fight over you, let them fawn over you, let them, you know, it's, it's, it's bidding one-on-one, you know, it's economics. You, you, you raise up, you, you drive up the demand in you. And obviously if his heart's drawn to Mexico, he doesn't want to do that. Go for it. It makes sense for them. And it makes sense for Canada to let him do that. I think it's a glorious sign of the times that a contracted Arsenal player chose another country over Canada and the overall reaction, the general reaction to that news from Canadian fans is, eh, that's all right. We'll move on and cool. kind of deal with it. Now, obviously, they qualify for the World Cup. Things are going very well. Would it be the same thing if this was even two, three, four years ago? Probably not. That does go to show you the situation the program is in now. And sure, if in a couple years' time, he is getting, say, 10, 15 caps here and there. He's making a World Cup squad, maybe in a Gold Cup winning squad, let's just say Mexico and wins the Gold Cup. Is the choice worth it? Sure. But I also am very glad to see the reaction from the majority of Canadian fans is, you know what? Good on him. He made his choice. Um, we're not going to criticize it. We're not going to rip him like we have maybe some other dual nationals in the past who've chosen other countries over Canada. And that's the way it is because I think people are now realizing how difficult this is for players this age to make this decision. And I think a lot of uh, players have come out recently. I know uh, Sebastian Allaire actually came out once and, and was talking about really just how mentally and emotionally draining it is to make this choice. Because just because you pick one country over the other doesn't make you more of one and less of the other. And also looking at his statement, he was very, very kind, very thankful to Canada because obviously they, he was born there and obviously he is, you know, he is trinational, but I will say this. If I feel like today's reaction is very indifferent, but if Flores turns into even a championship player or a player playing, you know, regularly in, in Holland in in Belgium, it still will be one of those, eh, you know, you could have helped Canada. 
Uh, but right now, there's no doubt about it. I mean, right now, he's as, as AGR said it, he's a prospect. And I am not surprised by his decision, mainly because his father has been just rushing this whole process, has been really on it. And once you get a once you get a cap, then you get the whole country of Mexico on you. And that's 120 million pendejos constantly, you know, in social media. <laughs> so look, I mean, the pressure of Mexico, I mean, you gotta you have to understand that the media and Mexico fans just it's on a completely another level, you know. And of course, the list of questions continues here in the mailbag. Mike Lafarbe, honestly, I think I can say this and not be the only one relieved about it. With Forsk being committed to Mexico, what are you setting the odds for possibly seeing both Mitrovic and Jefferson in June? I'm fully expecting Mitrovic for sure. Uh, and other questions, uh, similar ask um, by Francois Beauclair. Uh, with Thoris gone, is there more pressure on Herman to bring in Diesh and Mitrovic? The final whistle, I really believe Stefan Mitrovic is more of a priority who we need to get in and cap tight. And another one and final from Ramsey, any word of Mitrovic joining the team in the upcoming window? Diash and Jebison, I don't think so because Diash will be focused on his club situation, I'm sure, as he has been all year. He did have one or two call-ups to matchday squads for sporting, but ultimately didn't make the final 18 due to potential injured players passing late fitness tests. He's still 18 years old. He made a lot of progress this season as a number 10 and winger in UEFA Youth League and at Sporting B in a professional setting, I might add. And then you look at Jebison. He might represent England at the U19 Euros this summer, which kick off June the 18th. And his club situation is up in the air in terms of his status at Sheffield United, especially because it doesn't look look like they're going to get promoted to the Premier League this season. So they have to work that out a little bit. Mitrovic is the guy you have to push for out out of the three. And I don't think there's even an argument here. There will be opportunities to cap the other two in the future. Serbia's senior staff has been monitoring Mitrovic's game since November, December. He's represented them a few times at under 21 level now, has to file a one-time switch, and Serbia has Nations League games next month as well. So you might have to expedite the process to get Mitrovic into the camp. Another wrinkle is a possible summer transfer abroad, which appears very likely or so we think. So maybe he has to stay back and arrange that. His camp did do the research in January as to whether he'd have to file that one-time switch. And we know he is interested in Canada as well, but this is the most ready-made player of the three. Thanks to his top flight minutes, he scored 10 goals this season. He fills some positional needs as a 10 or as a winger. So if the opportunity is there, you absolutely have to bring him in because his improvisation and ability to take over games at times could be very useful for this team. Yeah, I think for me, I haven't really figured out my, because obviously with the Canadian men's national team camp coming up, I'm going to start figuring out what the heck my depth chart looks like, what the heck my projected squad but I know I, before I even dive into that, Stefan Mitrovic is going to be in there. And he, sh- if John Herdman doesn't have in there, this one's going to be a much bigger loss than, than Marcelo Flores is right now. And that's what right now for Canada, that's what you're focused on. In a year, two years, three years, things can change so much. You've got all these, you know, 16, 15, 14, 17 year olds moving to Europe, the, the, you know, the, again, to, to fill the, the hole of Marcelo Flores right now in terms of needs now, letting Stefan Mitrovic go, go to Serbia. Would be a big loss because 
not only do you have a player like this eligible to represent Canada, just 19 played, you know, top flight in Serbia, scored 10 goals as a number 10, which is a very good output for a number 10. Uh, you know, it must be said. I mean, I've, you know, pretty pretty obvious by by seeing that against top clubs too. Like he's scored against Red Star. He's scored against some other big clubs in the Serbian league. So he hasn't been shy uh, by the big occasion. He he looks ready for national team football. And what is most important? This isn't say like a Flores situation where it mostly felt like from Canada it was always Canada be like, hey Marshall, you want to give us a try? You want us to? You know, you want to come? You want to? It was always a lot of not not you know it was a lot of one way it feel, feels like with Mitrovic he wants to you know you see that interest from you know the family you see it for you here but why you know January how he wanted to come give it a go it sounds like he wants to give Canada a try he grew up here you know he's familiar with guys like Corbiano who he's best friends with having cr- come up with him through the academy it feels like a no-brainer especially how the June window lines up like Peter says Serbia has competitive games they pretty much, they tie him, they get him past that three game threshold. It's over, right? You know, you, you forget about it, especially with the new cap tied uh, rules. He is young enough where technically it won't be over, but you imagine if they bring him in for June, then they bring him in for September. Uh, he gets over the three cap threshold. Uh, it, it's, it's done. So for, for, because of that in June, you got the Iran game, you bring him in for that, give him a taste. And Hey, if he isn't ready to commit, so be it. Then you, you, you focus on September, but at least with that, you can offer him that proposition of come for the friendly, come for the camp. And if you're ready to commit, you got competitive games. You can come and you can play in, in those and then uh, go from there. Mitrovic was extremely close to making a move in January. I literally saw the paperwork. It was, it was about, I was supposed to go all head in uh, with Mechelen playing in the first division of Belgium, but uh, they couldn't come into terms in terms of uh, the money. Uh, and you look at uh, players who have really shined in the Serbian league as young as Mitrovic is, at age 19, and you you compare Mitrovic just to Diaz and Jevison, he's the only one that has flat out said, I want to play for Canada. Out of the three, and Jevison has liked a couple posts here and there. Diaz, you know, posted when Canada qualified to the World Cup. He posted that story on his Instagram, but he hasn't really been vocal about it, right? Mitrovic has. He's literally said on this podcast, I want to play for Canada. Out of the three, he's the only one. So, Next question is from Jordan SC. Can we say Canada has turned the corner on getting uh, notable dual nationals to commit with this Flores announcement? Yes, we can. You brought in Stefan Ostakio. You got Ike Ugbo. You have a bunch of under 20 eligible dual national players who just a month ago in an under 20 camp were super excited to represent this country and said that they felt a very strong connection with the coaching staff and with this group and are now prioritizing this country. In a country like Canada, where you have so much multiculturalism, and when you have so many players who are eligible for multiple countries, you're not going to get everybody. That's just the reality of the situation. Just because Fakayo Tomori and Marcelo Flores chose other countries over Canada doesn't mean that, oh, well, is it really that much of a momentum? I don't think so. There's still very much momentum. There are still players who want to play for this country more than, say, a few years ago. The progress is there. It's just not always going to be 100% success rate. That's just, it's, it's soccer. I mean, t- if teams like France and England are going to lose dual nationals, obviously very different situations, but you know, be, all sorts of big teams lose these battles. There's different emotions, sentiments. Some people just have a draw to certain places. Uh, so, you know, you're never going to fully get, 
you win some of those battles. So for Canada, I think you have to be happy. The fact that Ustakio, you get Ustakio. The, the one for me, now that you think about it, is E.K. Ugbo. The fact that he, you know, realizing that he was eligible, he calls Daniel Henry and be like, hey, how do I make this work? How do I figure things out? And gets the paperwork. He's the one reaching out. I think that's going to be the biggest one, is that players now are going to show that desire. You're seeing that. Like he's, You mentioned Stefan Mitrovic is saying he wants to, to play. Before, it was kind of always just like, it felt like Canada was just the, the one chasing. It would be like, oh, Azmir Begovic, you know, Owen Hargraves, Julian, De, you know, or Jonathan. sorry, it was Jonathan. I always mix up the de Guzman, Jonathan de Guzman. It was always like, come, come, like begging on your knees, you know, hands together, like, come on, we really need you here. Now players are going to want to come. You hear more Tom Holmes and Sandre Solholmes who all of a sudden, oh, I have a Canadian grandparent. Let's start putting myself out there because I want to play for Canada. There's going to be many more like that. It's Right now for Canada, they're in such a good situation in terms of players wanting to play here. You're not going to win every battle, but just the fact that there's interest is huge and I'm sure will lead to more high-profile situations like in Ugbo where a talented player is sitting there and realize they lived four years in Canada at the right age or that their grandparents actually Canadian or parent or something like that or that they had a Canadian passport that they always thought useless and all of a sudden it's a lot more useful I think it's it's going to be more of that, and that's great for Canada. Interesting question here from David Kessman. Name the three biggest dual national heartbreaks in Canadian soccer history. I just have three names that mind: Begovic, Harsgreaves, and uh, the Guzman. Uh, what do you guys think? I'd, I'm not including Begovic in mine because Canada's always been fine for goalkeepers, as talented as he was. I'm just talking in my lifetime, the ones that impacted me the most covering this team and or watching this team over the last 17, 18 years. Number one is always going to be Owen Hargreaves. I think it will be for most people over a certain age. Uh, number two, I'm going to go Jonathan de Guzman on this because I think we all remember the score interview James Sharman have with Jonathan de Guzman at a Toronto FC match. He was wearing a Canada jacket, I believe at the time. And he basically sat there and said, yeah, I think I'm going to play for the Netherlands. Uh, the paperwork's already through and this and that. And no one saw it coming because everybody thought that he was going to commit to Canada. Um, and it just didn't end up happening. So so that was crushing. And then third for me, Fakayo Tomori, because he would have really bolstered this player pool at center back had he committed. I don't think there was a possibility he was going to end up coming back, but just knowing the impact he could have had, that does have to sting a little bit. Yeah, just to hop on, because I obviously mentioned Begovic, uh, Hargraves, and de Guzman. And I, I was going to say, agree with Peter and throw in uh, Tomori. Just for me, uh, obviously, if he wants to play for England, I have no qualms with that. But I just yeah. look on paper the fact that he could have been a star of Canada's defense, just the rock back there playing at AC Milan, Chelsea at the time. Do he's just you watch him play every week for Milan. Like he's such a cerebral, phenomenal, dynamic center back. The kind of center back that Canada, it would he would be a, a, a star of just not just Canada, Concacaf, and now just it's. I, I feel bad for him really. How just England continues to ignore him for guys like Connor Cody and you know Tyron Mings, and even in the form he's been in Harry Maguire. And you just look at Tamori, and I just I feel for him that a he's not getting into England squad, and b that Canada missed out on a player that good. Because yeah, like you mentioned with Begovic. Who knows what his role is going to be? I mean, Jonathan de Guzman, that was a big blow, but Canada's, you see them now in the midfield where, where they're at. You see some of that, but Tamori just, he could have been a rock of the defense for a decade. And the fact that he's now in England lost in the shuffle, that, that's painful. 
Oh, Alex, those Harry Maguire videos. Uh, I'll just never get more enough of those. Uh, Pascal Pelliche at Shovel Third. Did you notice anything from a tactical standpoint that explains how Jonathan Davis scored a brace this weekend after having such a long dry spell? Simple. And it's, it goes back to everything I've written about the last two or three times about this and that Leo were hitting Nice a lot in transition, but they were playing quickly and vertically, which perfectly suits David. Almost all of his goals have been scored in the box and in mostly central areas. And that's not a coincidence with all of his goals coming via recoveries through the high press transitions or quick vertical play. Another key element though, which I think has been overlooked at times was Tim Weah starting him and David have had good chemistry all season. And for some reason they seldom start together. Weah was hurt for part of it. And David had COVID in January. Yes. But the fact they haven't started together more is pretty crazy given the clear synergy they have. Ethan Drew, what are you guys' opinion on the new Premier League teams interested in David? you think any of them are a good fit? Van S. Jets, how strong is the rumor of David to AC Milan? And finally, Pascal Perice, I saw a report that Villa are interested in him for the summer. How would you rate that move if it were to happen? Aston Villa would make no sense unless they offload one of Danny Ings or Aldi Watkins. They've played with two up front recently, but with Coutinho coming in and playing in behind and needing that space and freedom to roam in order to get the best out of him, I don't know if that benefits Jonathan David. West Ham could work in theory if he's part of a partnership with Mikel Antonio. Arsenal, I can't see working tactically. And Ketia David duo, yes, possibly, but they, they tend to only play with a number nine with Odegaard in behind. And then the wingers in Saka and Martinelli kind of coming from the wings inside to provide some goal scoring exploits. And ditto AC Milan. In theory, they play lovely football when attacking through their width, but you know that they have fullbacks and attacking midfielders combining with one or two of the midfielders in the pivot to create overloads and set up crosses. However, David isn't very good in the air. Milan has signed Ibrahimovic, Giroud, Mandzukic, etc. for those aerial abilities in part. Yes, coaches can tweak their systems to ensure David fits in seamlessly, but on the surface, none of those clubs look good. I'd say a Leipzig, Dortmund, or Inter would be the best three clubs for him, with Liverpool coming forth if they didn't have, uh, already sign Luis Diaz. Yeah, I think pretty much sums it up. In terms of David right now, I'm looking for tactically flexible clubs, clubs with two striker partnerships where David can kind of play underneath, you know, a, a proper number nine. Because that's what we saw this year with Lille. The different, what was the difference between this year, last year? Barack Yilmaz, last year we saw what David playing with him could do versus this year was a shadow of himself. And then you see the tactics as well with the Jocelyn Gouvernac, how it went from fluid counterattacking football to just stagnant and, and whatnot. I think with David, if he can get a, he can thing is with David, he's versatile. He can play in possession. He can play in counterattacking. He doesn't have to worry about that, but as long as it's, you know, he can play in that second striker role and not have to lead the line, unless it's like as a false nine, I think that will suit him. And I think smart teams will, will hopefully uh, look at that. Final whistle eight. What are your thoughts on the Sam Adekubi transfer to Farnabache or Istanbul Basakshir? Which side would you prefer? This is incredibly intriguing when I read this because guess who plays left back slash left wing back? Ferdi Ferdi Kadiogu. Exactly. Exactly. So this is what I find hilarious in that he could actually end up being the backup to Kadioglu. 
Um, or possibly they push Kadioglu further forward into his natural winger role and have Atakubi as the left back. That's a possibility. But the risk with going to a big Turkish club is you never know when that financial bubble is going to burst. Besiktas looked in great shape a year or two ago. Now they have a wage crunch with all the big contracts they have on the books. Galatasaray slid down the table this year because of financial problems and Fenerbahce underwent the same problem a couple years ago. The bright side is it's a massive club in Turkey. So you'd fight for titles theoretically. And in the case of Fener, they're likely heading to the Champions League second round of qualifying and need reinforcements. But is playing time going to be hard to come by there? It kind of looks like it. That's why Bashak Shahir could be the place to go. Lucas Lima is their starting left back, but he's been okay this season. Atakubi could be a pretty sizable upgrade. The one downside is no Champions League possibility, at least for this year. Either of those clubs would be fine, but Bashak Shahir would be the one you'd probably want him to go to for playing time reasons. And really, that's the most important thing. Yeah, for me, I think personally, I'd, yeah, it's tied with Bashir. In terms of the, the Fernabachi, I think it's, you know, a big club, lot, lots to like there. But I just think for Atakubi at this stage, you've seen all that, the growth that just playing has given him. He just needs to play, I think, based on how his career started with the injuries and, you know, falling out of, uh, you know, form at some clubs. He just needs to keep playing. So it's, if you know going to Istanbul, the, the other side of Istanbul is the 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 way to go for for him. I'd say Bashakshir, but uh, otherwise for me, I'm just the biggest part of the news is this is good to see big teams interested in him because I think after the year he he had, it was going to be coming, and I think this will just be the start because if there's any shrewd teams in top five leagues in Europe, he's the kind of player you target because he's 26 playing on a you know Canadian national team. His stock now, is going to but... go up. Just freshly turned 27, if I'm not mistaken, pretty recent uh, birthday, but he's going to play Canada this year at the World Cup. His stock's going to go up massively if he keeps playing the way he is. So if you could pounce now while his stock's a lot lower, uh, you know, outside of certain circles, you can get him at such a good price. Now, if teams are smart, they will be looking at him in top five leagues. So I think this is just going to be the start of the, of the interest, which will, will be good because that will allow him more choice and allow him to potentially make a, a big move for his career. Cause I think it's coming. If not, it's going to come after the world cup and it's going to come at an increased price. So if teams smart, they move now and they move quick. Winnipeg Guerrito. If you had to guess who would be the other European clubs interested in Sam Adekubi this summer, Peter. Considering German scouts are constantly watching Turkish football. I am sure there are going to be some Bundesliga clubs watching. Um, that would be my guess. And especially considering Hatay Sport signed him for 400,000 euros last summer. He's going to be available at a bargain price, even with two years left on his contract. So I would imagine they would be the ones that I would guess would be interested, but I don't have any real intel at this point. Ariane 5, do you think Theo Corvenu can crack the Wolves' first team next season? And if not, where would he go for a loan, Alex? I think he he he's such a wild card. That's the thing. He's shown it when he, he made his Premier League debut a year and a half ago. He's showed it in flashes in, the, in League One. When he's on his game, he has borderline Premier League talent. He Again, we can talk about his physical tools, his technical ability all day long. So for me, I think it depends on a good preseason. I think Wolves will certainly give them a shot. I think it was great sign to see them change their his loan within the same league just because they felt they weren't pro- he wasn't progressing in the way that they liked that Sheffield 
uh, Wednesday and they moved him to MK Dons for that reason. So they obviously care about him. They see him as a long-term uh, option and they're going to want to have him be, you know, in their future plans. So I think he's going to get a chance to, to, to get a good preseason run. And does he have the talent to make it? If he, yeah. So it will depend on him on the preseason, but if not, I'd like to see him go to the championship and get a taste of that step up. Yes. You look at his stats in league one, you look at how he was in and out of the squad. You do wonder if another season in league one could, could do him well, but I think based on his, how he continues to grow and that he's got his first professional year under his belt, I would like to see what he could do in a championship setting. If uh, preseason at Wolves proves that he isn't quite ready yet for, for premier league football. Agreed. But I know I was critical of his recent form, but there's no doubting the talent and the strides he made this season in his first proper go as a professional in a tough league with two different clubs in various roles on the pitch. People forget about that. If he just learns to get a bit more involved with teammates, uses them to help him create separation with defenders, he can really explode. That's the big issue. When you're constantly running at players, you'll end up being marked tightly and defenders are aware you probably won't be going past first most of the time. So if he can fix that issue, he will go places for sure. Nick wants to know, how are Canadians faring at US MLS Next Pro teams and any news on if Simon Collin will stay with PSV? Well, as we've said a couple of times, the odds are decent that Colin is going to be retained by PSV, especially with Van Nisselrooy now getting the first team gig, plus the EU passport, which is always very valuable. As for the MLS Next Pro players who've stood out, the three that immediately stand out are Mo Farsi, Jason Russell Rowe, both on Columbus, and then Matteo Bunbury at Sporting KC2. Farsi has two assists, but he's a chance-creating machine so far this season at right back. 0.36 expected assists per 90 minutes in just over 530 minutes of action this season and has appeared to have improved in terms of combining with teammates and everything of the sort, which I think was one of his weaknesses last year in the CPL. Russell Rowe at 19 has five goals in seven games, tied for second in the league, and all those goals have come in his last five matches. He's averaging an astounding 0.66 expected goals per 90 in about 450 minutes of action and 3.1 shots per 90. The fact he's getting into position constantly to potentially score and is getting shots off with regularity is very promising. And the same for Bunbury. He has four goals in seven games, although he's on a heater right now that appears unsustainable, but he continues to dictate play as a 16 year old. Let's not forget that has incredible technique and is now attempting more shots just needs to be a little selfish uh, or a little less selfish at times. And he is certainly one to watch for the under 20 championship in the next few weeks here. Perhaps the final soccer specific question uh, from wsoccer.ca. Uh, any insight on some of these Canadian women's national team transfer rumors specifically Kadisha Buchanan to Real Madrid and Adriana Leon to Real or Barca, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I think for Buchanan, I think the writing's starting to be on the wall. The fact that she was such a key regular for them the last two, three years. Uh, and then all of a sudden, as soon as these rumors kind of came out, she, uh, you know, she, she stopped playing. Leon re- recently signed Wendy Renard to, to a contract uh, extension, if I'm not mistaken. You know, the r- rumors were confirmed by some very credible sources. I think it's foregone conclusion Buchanan's going to Real Madrid. So I think that's very exciting, Real Madrid. I think they're, they're, they're not happy with how 
dominant FC Barcelona has been and, and, you know, there with the crowds, with the Champions League, how they've just been running over everyone. To follow up with that, Andrew, Adriana Leone, I think that's great to see her link because I always found with West Ham, she was a bit underrated. Injuries have dogged her. It's been really unfortunate. Some of the injuries she's dealt with, foot injuries, broken foot, etc. But when she's been healthy, she's been so dynamic with both West Ham and Canada, just the way she manages playing that inside forward role. Uh, but she also can be a number nine. She's just so dogged. She's, she's got great technique. She, she can create, but she can also score. I think it would be great to see her, what she could do uh, taking a step up and going to Real Madrid to join Buchanan would be fantastic. Of course, the Barca links are exciting. If she could be involved in a setup like Barca, how deep they are, how talented they are, that would only do wonders for a game. But I think personally, her going to Madrid and, and getting a role like that to star in a big club with the Canadian around her, I think those rumors are, are, are both very exciting. And I think uh, there's going to be the first of many uh, for on the women's side. You look at what Jordan Hoytema's future is going to look like. You look at some of the other uh, top players in, in, in Europe right now, there's going to be a lot of movement. And I think it's, it's exciting to see those two in particular. Andrew Thompson, I love the pod, guys. You guys often discuss advanced stats for players and teams. Good for us noobs to football. I'd love to hear a podcast or segment on some of the basics. Good learning for many. Just a thought. Keep it up. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, and Andrew also specified later that really the main sort of analytic he sees is expected goals or XG and conceptually understands it, but just kind of wants a little more detail just to sort of fill in the the blanks here and there. So the thing with expected goals is it can be very useful over a large sample. The problem with using it on a game-by-game basis is it doesn't take everything into account. And every model is different as well because it's a value assigned based on past history of that shot location, but it doesn't take into account the height of the shot, goalkeeper's positioning, defender's positioning and likelihood to block it, um, the velocity of the shot as well, um, which is actually something that I believe Statsbomb actually came out today and said they're going to start incorporating all of these criteria into their new expected goals model, which is huge because that is the one flaw with it. And when I've actually worked with uh, agencies and clubs in the past with expected goals, I've tried to kind of put my own values on them or my own model onto it, taking these things into account by just watching the footage and almost manually inputting the, the data points in there. But basically Expected goals over a large sample size is the best way to go about it, especially when you're looking at a player's season or a team season up to a certain point. But in single games, it can be a little deceptive if you don't watch the game and see, for example, oh, there was a cross right across the face of goal. A forward came in, dove, stuck out his leg, missed the shot. But you look at the location of the shot. It was central. It was six yards out from goal. If he had connected with that shot, that's like a 0.5, 0.6 expected goal shot, right? But because he didn't make contact, it's not counted as a chance. So these are some of the intricacies. We can go into detail about this, I think, on a specific show to those who want to hear more about it. But generally speaking, that is how I sort of try to elaborate on expected goals for people who are still getting into it. Interesting question from Avery Yoon. Uh, will you be going to the World Cup in Qatar either as media or as a fan? 
Um, gentlemen, I'll go first. Uh, for me, it is 50-50. I don't think making the trip as a fan will, will happen for me. I think it'll have to be uh, either as a journalist. I am, uh, yeah, for me, it's 50-50, either with Canada or any other outlets that I'm talking to Maybe right Chile. now. Who knows? You never know. You never know. Oh, wait. Yeah. Uh, well, for me, if I had to put percentages on it, uh, I'd say 65% going as media, 35% not going at all. Um, I've been able to get possible arrangements for accommodation. Um, and if that comes through, I am going to be going to Qatar to cover mostly Canada. Um, that would be my main goal for going, but then I tried to get tickets for a couple of games in and around Doha as well. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, I don't know if I could put a percentage on it. I think a few months ago for me in my head, it was zero. I think now that it's happened and you, you just see how much, you know, things have changed personally, how things have changed for Canada. I'm obviously, I mean, I'm just going to go day by day. I'll, you know, I'll talk to, talk to the right people. I'll apply for accreditation. So you never know if, if you'll get that or not. And then from there, figuring out the flights, figuring out, uh, accommodation so i'd say i'm definitely uh, considering it. it would be great if we could somehow get all three of us and do some live northern football uh from the the wild and chaotic streets of doha uh they're not very they're the far, furthest thing from wild and chaotic but uh just felt it's like, not the uh, jungle felt, Alex. this is just Qatar. It felt, it felt it felt naked to say just boring old doha so i tried to ex- you know make it sound a little more exciting but it uh, won't be boring it would, if alexander gange ruzik is roaming the streets of Delhi. We, we are trying to bring the low button shirts to Qatar. Let's just I say that. So, so and maybe the rings and the may- chains and, and everything. I do just want to say that it is amazing how our fans and our listeners literally care about as much as they're here for the soccer. Of course, that is the, the, the reason of the show as much that they, they care about, you know, what we do in the media and, and, and how we do it. And I think that's just amazing how so, so many fans are just, you know, into, you know, how, what we're doing and, and what is, what is up to next for us. But it is incredibly hard uh, for people who are wondering uh, to secure accommodation, the flights, uh, freelance contracts and, and whatnot. From Jay Fitzsimmons, one of our loyal fans, congrats to Thomas for his own bomb. He signed with a soccer media agency to represent him. What do agencies do for soccer media workers like you? Do they find opportunities, help with contracts? How does it all work? Uh, pretty much just like any other agency um, that would represent players or coaches. You know, they try and find you work, you know, jobs that you normally wouldn't get access to, um, places that you normally couldn't get yourself. Uh, then negotiate the contracts, of course, and introduce you. Uh, so that is that. And to the Canadian Championship, we go. The first round began last week with pretty straightforward results. York United defeated Athletic Ottawa 7-6 on penalties at TD Place. Uh, Halifax Wanderers beat Guelph United of League One 2-0. Calvary edged Edmonton 2-1 in El Clasico. Forge beat Vermont 2-0 off PLSQ. And the Whitecaps defeated Valor 2-0 for their first win over CPL opposition, which is pretty surprising. Anything in particular stand out for you guys in any of these four games? Vancouver getting their first win over CPL opposition and doing so pretty dominantly, I think is probably first of mind. And yes, would Jonathan Sirois being there, maybe Andrew Jean-Baptiste being there, have maybe mitigated some of the damage earlier 
possibly yes, but Vancouver was dominating that game from start to finish. Fowler was really no match for them. Very, very slow to react at the back to a lot of what Vancouver was doing. And they named a strong 11. So kudos to them for taking it seriously and getting that monkey off their back. And now they're going to be facing cavalry in what is going to be a pretty tough test, although maybe a little less so with some of the injury news that's been coming out of there. But Good to see them. And then the crowd that went to Guelph United and saw them play against Halifax Wanderers. That was great to see. Just under 2,000 people attended. And on the night when the Leafs were playing the Lightning as well, that's very impressive. It goes to show you that this is what the CPL should be doing in terms of targeting certain markets in that sometimes you have to start local and then work your way up from there and not so much look for the big metropolises and try to make a a footprint there when clearly there's potential in markets like Peterborough and Guelph and, you know, now the Fraser Valley as as we're going to see in, in the next year as well. Yeah. I think that's, you know, fantastic points in terms of uh, long-term, some of the the markets to to target in terms of the games, just to kind of round off some of them you didn't talk about. I thought the, the the Cavalry's versus Edmonton game was fascinating. The fact Cavalry was dominant again. You thought it was going to be a repeat of that 3-0 win they had in the CPL action a few days prior. And then Edmonton showed some great, you know, fighting spirit and, and actually made a game of it. Tobias Warshuski, uh, he's continued to be really impressive for me. A couple other players, Mamadi Kamara, T-Boy Fea. Uh, there's some fun players in Edmonton. Maybe the results haven't gone their way. They're still uh, figuring things out after a very chaotic off season and then now preseason, but just thought that was pretty cool. I mean, otherwise the drama of York United versus Atletico Ottawa slowly blossoming into what could be a very fun rivalry going forward. Like, first of all, like can those two teams meet in a potential playoff series? Uh, I feel so hockey-ish. Can we say it? playoff tie? How about that? Um, to 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 set, continue to settle their scores because every game they've played so far this year and last, I think it was something like every game except one they've played in their history has been a tie. Uh, so there's obviously a lot of competition there. Now there's starting to be yellow cards, red cards, et cetera. And then lastly, Outremont. I thought they were so good against Forge. Like I was yeah, not man. expecting that. Like in terms of the, the Guelph game, Guelph, had moments, but Halifax for the most part were dominant. Whereas Utkomo, when I was watching, like they were playing, they were, they were playing. And then it was Taryn Campbell scored and they still kept playing. And I thought that was just impressive to the PLSQ. Cause that was the same as last year when, when uh, Blainville played Halifax away, both away these in both cases, Blainville gave Halifax such a good game. Like it was no inches uh, given. It was no cheap goals. They played good. And I just thought it was cool to see the PLSQ continue to do well there. And, Man, it really, uh, you know, I'd love to see in the future more PLSQ, more League One Ontario, more League One BC teams, just because it's fun to see how they they fare. And pretty remarkable stuff. The quarterfinals are now set. It is the Whitecaps facing against Cavalry at Spruce Meadows, Pacific hosting York United, Halifax welcoming Toronto FC. Uh, that's the game I'm really looking forward to. And Montreal battling Forge at Stat Saputo, perhaps a revenge uh, for Forge this time around. Uh, the quarter, the quarters will be played next week on May 24th and 25th. Over to the MLS in what was an eventful weekend for the Canadian teams. We'll begin with the team in form, CF Montreal. They shut out Charlotte 2-0 on the road thanks to goals from Georgi Mihailovic and Alistair Johnston. That's how that's now eight games unbeaten as Montreal goes top of the East. Ariane. With how Montreal is playing this season, do you think they can make the MLS Cup final? 
I am very high on Montreal right now. I think it's all clicking it together. They've got depth. They've got stars. The way Georgi Mihailovic is playing, like MLS MVP uh, certainly should be in the running for that. Their new pieces are gelling. Alistair Johnson's finding new life as a right wing back now. As we, after we thought he'd be a center back, you know, guys like Joel Waterman are playing out of his skin. Sebastian Brezza's finally looking comfortable in goal and, and looking good. Kamal Miller after, you know, he continues to be very... Very solid. You talk about Victor Wanyama and that Ismail Kone pivot. You add in Mathieu Joanier coming back from injury. Uh, Samuel Piet as well. Like there's just, there's depth, there's talent. Well, for Nancy has continued to be a very impressive uh, head coach uh, ever since he's come in. Like they have all the pieces for me. They, they tick off all the boxes. So no reason why Montreal can't be a favorite in the, in the, the East. I think uh, the fact that I looked through some of the numbers on, on a piece I wrote on one soccer and everything checks out too. Like they're playing hard opponents, their XG, their X, their expected goals against it's all, reasonable uh, they're, they're just playing solid fundamental good soccer so as long as they keep this up i think there's no reason why montreal can't go on a run in both the canadian championship as well as in mls so from a montreal lace any chance the montreal manages to keep mihalovich johnson and miller through the summer window and until the season ends peter mr neff we got to work on your french my friend my god um <laughs> listen as we insinuated last week, and I think the week before that as well, I don't think we'll see many summer moves for MLS players unless the offer is too good to turn down. Players won't want to uproot themselves quickly and risk losing their spot at the World Cup. They'll definitely keep the Canadians. Uh, Mihailovic might be the one wild card, but even then, I don't see them selling their best player this season, mid-season, when they're firmly in a playoff spot and could possibly make a run in the playoffs. Vancouver Whitecaps were involved in another in another thriller with the San Jose Earthquakes. That one finished 3-3 thanks to a crazy second half. Lucas Cavallini scored and was arguably the man of the match. We could be having Lucas Cavallini on for the next episode. We'll be interviewing him uh, this week. Potentially, it's looking like it's going to happen. But uh, to the man that is out west right now, that, of course, is Alex Gangaruzic. Uh, David K. Yes, man. Are we witnessing a Kalani renaissance? He's playing phenomenal soccer right now. It's It's been fun to watch. I, I've been impressed with Cavallini because uh, we, we were kind of ta- talking about it uh, here, over here on our, our Vancouver Whitecaps podcast, uh, Shout Out the Third Sub. Uh, we were talking about it actually because it, it brought, the question came up and we were, what's been most impressive about the Lucas Cavallini renaissance is that he hasn't had a ri- healthy Ryan Gold or a fully fit Ryan Gold for most of the season. And that was kind of coming into this year when we talked about reasons to be optimistic about Cavallini. You said, okay, at least give him a shot with Ryan Gold. Give him a shot uh, playing in, in, you know, in the dynamic white cap system. Yet that hasn't happened. And still Cavallini has, has been very good in all the games. If anything, he just hasn't had the goals to show. You watch San Jose, for example, he should have had four or five goals. He's just not getting the bounces. But you just look at the things he's doing off the ball, the running, the the pat, his passing in particular has improved immensely. The 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 pressing is always going to be there. If anything, it's just the yellow card memes that have kind of dogged him. And I mean, it is hilarious how he just somehow picks up a yellow card almost every game. But other than that, he's been so impressive in other ways than just what you expect from Cavalini, which is to get on the end of headers, to 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 you know, to take very strong shots from, from in close and, and, and use his power. He's really showing a good finesse to his game. He's showing good playmaking. He's showing good creativity. And because of that, that's what's impressed me both with Cavallini. And I think that's 
that sort of play is what's going to really keep his his inclusion in the Canamint alive. Because uh, you you talk a few months ago, it felt like oh Cavallini, if he keeps this up, he's done. If he's going to keep playing like this, given how important he already is to this Canadian squad, it's it's turning into a no brainer based on this versatility, this this fight is drive he's shown. Edward Hansing Wong. With Raposo's form this season, is there any chance he could sneak into the Nations League Iran squad? Do you see the benefits in his inclusion? So I think the likes of Raheem Edwards are probably going to be prioritized over Ryan Raposo at this point in time, but no doubt about it. He's been brilliant at left wing back. He's second on the Whitecaps and passes into the box per 90 minutes, at least top five, possibly top three in deep progressions and top five in shot creating actions. All those are per 90 metrics. The way he can just maneuver through tight spaces and create havoc with his off the ball runs and constantly find himself in ideal positions is really promising. And for a guy who seldom received a run of games in his first two seasons, it's great to see him finally getting regular chances. Uh, his time will come if he can continue this form. RFC lost its fifth straight game, this time in a one nothing defeat to Orlando City at the death at BMO Field. Now, with that said, uh, let's go to the CPL because Pacific stayed hot with a 2-1 win over Edmonton. Forge drew 1-1 with Ottawa, Halifax, and Calvary settled for a 2-2 draw, and Valor edged York 1-0 as well. A lot of questions on the CPL this week. Concaf, Wonder Kids, who has impressed you the most so far in the CPL, and who could you see make a transfer to a bigger club? The three that immediately come to mind for me, and I'm sure AGR would have different answers, um, but Sean Young, Victor Loturi, and a player we're probably going to talk about in a bit is Sean Ray as well. Honorable mentions to Isaiah Johnson and Andre Rampersad, who I think is one of the unsung heroes of the league. But I'd say those first three young guys are capable of making the jump, as it were. Whether it's Rhea locking down a roster spot with Montreal, Young becoming an MLS squad player, or Loturi doing the same. I think Young could be a terrific midfielder in the future. The way he reads the game quickly, pounces incisively, and then progresses the ball, the hard work he puts in off the ball, breathtaking. And I guess I'll quickly just hop in with, with a few more of my own. I mean, for me, Pacific, Kunli Luke, his growth as a fullback, I think he has all of the tools to play in MLS. Uh, and then for me, a couple of older guys, I agree, obviously, with the guys you mentioned, throwing a Diadine Abzin in there, Max Ferrari, but couple older guys, Ali Moosey, every time I watch Calgary, it's just, he's yeah, been in sure. some run of form. He is so dynamic and transition the ball like no one else is dribbling. Uh, he kind of has a, a, an outside winger slash number 10 roles, uh, you know, and then another one is Jeremy Gagnon-Lapare. Every time I watch Halifax plays, him and Rampersad are just dominant. The way they control the midfield, Rampersad does a lot of the dirty work, a lot of the the, the shuttling and then get the way Daniel Lapere progresses the ball and dribbles. He's a, both of those guys are a little older, but I think that could also benefit. You see what a, a Waterman did when he, he was a little older and he made the, the jump up to, to MLS without a problem. So I don't think that'd be an issue. And then uh, another player just quickly, Karifa Yao. I mean, every time I watch him as well, he just continues to grow and to grow. And he looks like not just a Montre future Montreal player, looks like a future Ken MNT player. Good answer uh, definitely on Jeremy, but uh, we just don't have the time, guys. Arch Sten, do you think Sean Rea can be a long-term replacement for Georgi Mihalovic once he moves to Europe? And Andrew Thompson, thoughts on Sean Rea getting the call this season for CL Montreal for some matches? Is his development a proof of the concept for the CPL value in youth development? 
Well, I think to answer the first question, I think he absolutely can be a long-term replacement for, for Georgie Mihailovic, a similar profile is kind of that number 10, but it can also play wide, can also score goals. I mean, just to just watch back the, the goal he scored from the weekend, if you want to see an example of that. And there were flashes as well against the Whitecaps. When he comes alive, he can just take on defenders. He's creative. He has passing in him. He has the shot. He just kind of has that dynamic attribute that you'd like from a number 10. And we kind of spoke about it before in terms of number 10s for the Canamente long-term. He does have a profile that would be very intriguing uh, for him. But for now, it's just, I think, I think he sees out the year with, with Valor, understandably so. Let him be dominant. Valor's been really good this year to start the year. Phil DeSantos has been a good hire from them. He's really brought some solidity. Uh, so I think if, if, if Rhea can continue to progress here, Montreal, let him do his thing. And then him and Yao come in hot for the preseason next year with, a, I assume, a sold Mihailovic, maybe some some sold center backs. I think there's two spots for them. And I think that's huge because that would be a sign of what Montreal is doing. I've liked how they haven't been shy and taking their young players. They aren't going to play and giving them the chance to play in the CPL. You've seen it with Sirwa as well. You've seen it with many other players, James Pantemis. They haven't been shy and it's really given some of these players opportunities who might not have otherwise gotten them and gotten stuck in the system in Montreal. So it's, it's huge to see them take advantage of this pathway because uh, it, it's really helped a lot of their prospects. Jordan wants to know honest opinions on the wonders. Do they deserve the criticism they get? I don't think so. To be honest, um, they, they haven't been blown out in any game yet, despite making quite a few changes to their defense and they lost Joao Morelli. They've reintegrated Akeem Garcia and they've only played twice at home this season. And if we examine their underlying numbers, the Wanderers have the third narrowly behind second, by the way, best defense in terms of expected goals conceded this season. And they are third in non-penalty expected goals four in the CPL and about fourth place in open play expected goal. So I think they're fine. And I think apart from the Island games, Stephen Hart hasn't received nearly enough credit for the work he's done over the last year and a bit. Uh, They narrowly missed the playoffs last year when Morelli got hurt and they've dominated a few games already. It maybe hasn't shown on the score sheet, but I think they're in pretty good shape. And final question to AJR uh, from El Gorda Loco. What are the expectations for Balu Talba in the CPL in the near future? Should he be a part of the best players or even the best in the league? I know what his head coach, Carlos Gonzalez, thinks. He's close. He's just on the cusp. He just needs some goals. He needs some confidence. He needs a breakthrough. Because every time you see Ottawa's games, like he's on it. Like he, It's been interesting to see how uh, Gonzalez has tried him out as a false nine. I think that's a very fascinating position for him, the way he can stretch defenses. He has a good shot on him. I think with him, it's it's just he 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 lacks that that edge in front of goal. He lashes at too many shots when he can maybe be go for finesse and whatnot. But the talent is most definitely there. The, the attributes are there. It's just figuring out that that it always just felt with Montreal when he came on the scene. He was always going hundred miles per hour, and then it worked for him and he got that move. And I think at Barcelona, that was kind of something that they maybe that maybe held him back is that he just always is going hundred miles per per hour. When sometimes you need to slow things down, you need to take your time, you need to. To, that's how you really take advantage of being a fast player, a player with good, those kinds of attributes. So I think as, as, as he continues to figure it out, which there are signs of, he's making great runs, he's getting into great positions. The next step is just finishing and, and making things happen. And he's been so electric already. I think there's no doubt that once he sorts that out, he uh, is, is going to, you know, he's going to be one of the better players in the CPL, at least attacking wise. Final question from Grandpa Riley. 
Why does it seem like Canopy clubs, Valor especially, in my opinion, have trouble getting players into the countries, into the country? Uh, mentions Walter Ponce, Rafael Gallardo, Amir Asodo. It's very simple from what I've heard and been told by multiple sources over the years. Um, in this case, Valor specifically, just because you mentioned that they are the club that is having most trouble with this. Uh, they just don't want to pay for the visas. Um, end of story. Like they have to hire a lawyer to fight the process and whatnot, and they just they don't want to go through that uh, you know process because it is a very lengthy process, and especially getting a player that you know at the end of the day is only going to be by that point is only going to be there for half the season, not the full season, and it's just the delay takes on, and that's why they decide to release the players. Yeah, and there's a massive, massive backlog for visas and permanent residents since the pandemic started, and it's only gotten worse now that things have really started to open up. So that kind of exacerbates it a bit. But that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. No news and notes this week due to a lack of time. But let us know if you want shows that go longer than 90 minutes in the future. We definitely have the content to do so. Uh, But as always, we will leave it up to our dedicated listeners to decide. So for Thomas Neff and Alexander Gange-Ruzik, I'm Peter Galindo. We will see you next week.